We're looking in Genesis 15 today at the subject of our God as our shield and reward. And you'll notice from your bulletin outline, <clears throat> the first point there is that Abraham is afraid. And so he needs God as his shield. Now when we read in verse 1, God's word to Abram, do not be afraid. These words are in the imperative in the original, which means they are a command by God. So if God is saying this by command, he is saying, and he's using the negative here, Abraham, do not, do not be afraid. Or in uh, colloquialism, stop being afraid, Abraham. Which tells us that at the present time, Abraham was afraid. If you tell somebody, stop doing something, they're already doing it. And they're being told to stop it. Now, our first response might be, what in the world does Abraham have to be afraid about? Didn't God just deliver his enemies into his hands with his homegrown militia? Chapter 14, verse 20. Hasn't the Lord blessed his every move? How many patriarchs of that day could boast 318 trained males in their household, plus their wives, plus their children, and the wherewithal to support all of them? So God's blessed him in battle. God's blessed him in his household. God's given him lots of money. He supports this big family and all these servants. I mean, we look at this and it would appear to us that Abraham has the world by its tail, you know. He seemed to be doing just fine. God commended him on his battle against the federation of wicked kings and he conferred a blessing upon him through the priestly ministry of Melchizedek, chapter 14, verse 19. What could possibly make him afraid? Let me suggest a couple of things. Firstly, it could be a spiritual attack by the evil one. It's not specifically stated in the text, but it seems to be a pattern in Scripture that God's people often experience fear or dismay after a tremendous victory. Have you experienced that? I mean, think about it. Just let us gain an answer to something that we have been praying about for weeks or let us be encouraged to see God acting in our immediate family or in our church family in such a way that brings glory to God and it brings peace to us and wham! Looks like all hell breaks loose. Our spiritual footing is knocked out from under us. And we find ourselves fallen and we find ourselves bruised and sore and yes, full of fear. Full of fear. This happens to all of us at times. It happens to believers. It happened last week when we were here on Sunday and I had worked hard, really, on uh, searching and studying out all the spiritual ramifications of Melchizedek, knowing that he's likely, he is likely the most beautiful and the most thorough picture of Christ's priestly ministry that we have in the Bible. 
And so it was an uplifting study for me. And I'm thinking, oh, God, this is Thursday. You know, I'm winding up the study and I'm thinking, oh, God, this is going to be great. I'm going to be able to share this with the people. And it should be a great blessing. I hope it'll be a great blessing. I pray it'll be a great blessing. And what happened? We had 27 people here to hear the message. And on top of that, the Internet connection failed in the sound part of the broadcast, so nobody on our Internet audience heard the message. Donna, my wife, became so sick in church, I had to get her home immediately after the amen of the final prayer. And the Thursday before that Sunday, I fell on the ice, exiting my truck, and landed backwards hard on the curve of my neck slamming into the running board of my truck, resulting in x-rays this week and medications on Monday. And everybody and their brother is sick at home or in the hospital with serious illnesses, and we heard of two more again this morning. Now, just one of these events would make us wonder, what on earth is God doing? What is he trying to say? Now, with many of these vents piled one top of another like a child's building block toy set, it becomes evident that this is not child's play that's happening. When things go from bad to worse, when you are trying your best to be faithful to God, it may very well be an attack of the evil one through instilling fear. Fear that you have or are sinning. That's a good thing to think about when things like this happen. Fear that God is not pleased with your service. Fear that you may have crossed some unseen line between obedience to God and disobedience. Fear that though once blessed, as in the case of Abraham, now it's time for a trip to the woodshed for a much-needed attitude adjustment. Fear, fear. And without in the least disallowing that, yes, we, myself included, may be sinning or indifferent to God with regard to faithfulness and service, or sloppy, or negligent in prayer. There is, also, there is also the possibility that our fear is due to the ancient fear-monger himself, Satan, whose treachery often includes robbing God's people of the joy and the comfort of recent spiritual victory. Say, so would, would that really happen? Let me read a text to you considering Isaiah in the day and Hezekiah in the day of Isaiah and Sennacherib. Listen to how this is worded in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 1. After all that Hezekiah is godly king, you've got to know that. After all that Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah, and he laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them, for himself. Second Chronicles 32 verse 1. What did I just read? Faithful Hezekiah is faced with the vast army of the pagan, God-hating king of Assyria, 
Sennacherib. And Sennacherib's boast is like that of another wannabe potentate, the disenfranchised, exiled, fallen angel Lucifer, who boasted, I will make myself like the Most High. Isaiah 14, verse 14. Now listen to Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Listen to his boast, his bravado. Oh, what this is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your confidence, Hezekiah, that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he is misleading you to let you die in hunger and thirst. Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my fathers destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now do not let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or of the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord, the Lord God, and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote, Letters insulting the Lord, the God of Israel, and saying this against him. Just as the gods of the people of the other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and make them afraid. in order to capture the city. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other peoples of the world, the work of men's hands. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. Second Chronicles 32, verses 10 through 20. What did all this do? It made Hezekiah run to God in prayer, not away from God, but to God. But Sennacherib's men were trying, weren't they? Hey, we'll speak in Hebrew. They'll all get the message that way. And we'll terrify them. We'll get ready to take the city. The psalmist words it this way, My slanderers. What does the name Diabolos mean? From which we get the word devil? Slanderer. David says, My slanderers pursue me all day long. Many are attacking me in their pride. When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? All day long they twist my words. They are always putting and plotting to harm me. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps, eager to take my life. Psalm 56, verse 2 through 6. Oh, and Jesus said of the devil... He was a murderer from the beginning. John 8 verse 44. 
So I am suggesting you, firstly here this morning, that one of the reasons Abraham is afraid is because he is under a spiritual attack by the evil one. We look at on the surface and we say, there doesn't seem to be anything here for him to be afraid of. But he is fearful because God says, stop being fearful. Stop it right now, Abram. Stop it. Second possibility for Abram's fear is the retaliation of the federation he had just whipped in battle. So I would put it this way, a fear of powerful men. How powerful was the Syrian king federation that came against the king of Sodom and the other cities of the plain? Galatians 14, or Genesis rather, 14 verse 7, tells us that in their previous battles, this federation of kings conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazan Tamar. If you look on your Bible map, Hazan Tamar is right at the base of the Dead Sea. And the Amalekites and the Amorites are all on the east side of the Jordan, way up into Syria. These nations, the Amalekites and the Amorites, comprise two of the most fierce warrior people in the Old Testament times. For example, when Israel came out of Egypt under Moses' leadership, the Amalekites attacked them. And we read... As long as Moses held up his hand, he had his staff, as long as he held up his hand, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, probably from fatigue, whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Exodus 17, verse 11. So what happened? Aaron and Ur held up his hands for him, and Israel won that battle. But they were a fierce people. This rivalry went on for years, and even after Israel clamored for a king, Saul was given the commission to utterly destroy the Amalekites, which he refused to do, and it cost him his kingdom. And the Amorites, well, they were no better. They blocked the way to the promised land. Israel asked for safe passage, and they said, no, you can't, you're not coming through our land. And so Israel had to defeat the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan before they could cross over into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. So my point is that just because Abraham had won a skirmish with these two warrior tribes was no assurance that they would not retaliate with greater force. You say, well, uh, well... Wouldn't God protect him again? Well, likely, yes. But wicked men, learn this, wicked men carry a persona about them that terrifies law-abiding citizens. We're seeing this in our day, are we not? With the brutality and the utter disregard for human life that we are witnessing in the ISIS terrorists. Just this week, a number of American young men were arrested as they tried to sneak off and join ISIS. Why would any American sneak off and join ISIS who is beheading Christian people and have promised to behead the snake which they call us? That could have been your daughter. That could have been your son arrested at the airport. And the terror group Boko Haram of North Africa 
has just this week a pledge, pledged full allegiance to ISIS. They've already killed over 2,000 Christians in northern Africa. Boko Haram. And now they're uniting with ISIS, thus strengthening their numbers and their resolve. One interviewee of an ISIS captive bragged this week, we have ISIS sleeper cells in every major city of America. We are just biding our time. Oh, that's going to make me sleep really well tonight. And you. And all God-fearing people. You see, it is natural to have a fear of powerful men, of bloody men, of people whose conscience is not ruled by Christian morals, whose own warped teaching is bathed in callous hatred devoid of love for one's fellow man. They just as soon shoot you as spit on you. And while we take measures to protect ourselves against unconscionable evils like this, Abraham knew, and we should too, that God does not always intervene. Sometimes God allows his people to suffer defeat. Why? Well, to intensify the coming judgment for the persecutor. God has his books and he's keeping the records. To chasten us for being lazy and indifferent to our spiritual responsibilities. To spank us for being haughty and at ease with regard to our sin when we should be flat on our face pleading for God's forgiveness and mercy about the sin of our own life. So God has these wake-up calls now and again. And then, and then, sometimes God allows us to be persecuted that he may get glory from his confessing church. The writer of Revelation says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Revelation 12, verse 11. As John writes about the martyrs in the last day. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, one of the early church theologians, wrote in his defense of Christianity these words. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. By which Tertullian meant, the more the world kills Christians, the more the church of Christ will grow and prosper. It is the direct opposite effect intended. It is Satan's philosophy about Job and all believers, which he had the audacity to state to God, skin for skin, Satan replied to God. A man will give all he has for his own life. Job chapter 2, verse 4. But Job never did buckle. Even all the torture he went through by Satan's hand. And even when so weak and, and so tormented, and on the verge of death, being able, I think, as it were, to sense that his own end was near. Even then, Job's testimony was this. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh 
I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. And how my heart yearns within me. Job 19, verse 26 and 27. The psalmist sang this hymn of praise. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 27, verse 1 and following. Whatever the fears were that Abraham was experiencing in our text, God comes to him and he says, Abraham, stop being afraid. I, I am your shield. Your shield. What about his sustenance? Point two. God is his reward. What do you make of this second affirmation by God to Abraham? I am your reward. Your very great reward. King James Version says exceeding great reward. I like that better. Some versions read your reward will be great. Where does this fit into the narrative? Well, it harks back just one chapter in which Abraham returned from rescuing Lot and the people of the plain cities along with all of their recovered goods. But when it came to, hey, let's divide up the spoils time, Abraham said, count me out. Count me out. Really, Abraham? But, 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 but you've earned your share of the booty. You, you've spent a lot of your own resources. You, you deserve to be rewarded in your effort. Still Abraham refused, stating as his reason, Hey, I raise my hand to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and I have taken an oath that I will not accept anything belonging to you, king of Sodom, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. Chapter 14. Verses 22 and following. Now I read that and I don't know what the dollar amount of Abraham's loss was here. But it was substantial. 
And you don't do battle against four kings and their armies and recover all the spoils of their multi-city successful campaigns and not end up with a pile of cash and commodities. Chapter 14, verse 8. Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, Bela. Five cities in all, five treasured troves of booty numbering into the millions of dollars if he counted it in our currency. But Abraham turned it down. He turned it down. And not only so, but in addition to this loss of payback, Abraham paid out from his own pocket a tenth, a tithe, if you will, of everything. Chapter 14, verse 21. Add to this the cost of footing the bill, for the maintenance of his own 318 servants. And it's reasonable to conclude that this little skirmish cost Abraham a pile of money. What he had bought into was great debt. That's what he bought into. I was speaking to a real estate agent two weeks ago and uh, he told me that when his clients begin to have doubts about purchasing a piece of real estate, he backs off. Now, he's a Christian real estate man, so I praise him, praise God for that. He says, I back off from pressuring them to proceed. And then he told me why. Uh, I was thinking, well, why? Because you're going to lose a sale, you know. Why would you back off? Here's what he said. I do not want any of my customers to have buyer's remorse. Hmm. Buyer's remorse. Buyer's remorse is when you pay out a sum of money for something you just thought you had to have, but after you bought it, you sensed that your purchase wasn't the best decision that you could have made. Somehow the joy of ownership didn't materialize. The prized possession became a colossal flop. Only now, I mean, it's too late. You're stuck. You can't undo it. The seller has your payment, and he's not about to give it back. That's buyer's remorse. I would like to suggest that in the church there's another possibility which I call giver's remorse. That's when a person gives a sizable contribution to the church and as soon as the money makes its way into their hands and off into the church treasury, they begin to second guess their generosity. Why? Oh no. Why did I put $2,000 in the offering box. What was I thinking? How, how foolish. I mean, $2,000 would buy my wife that new washer and dryer set that she needs, and it would buy me the new lawn tractor that I need. I can't take it back. It's too late. Giver's remorse is what characterized Ananias and Sapphira's. Sapphira, a Christian couple in the church of Jerusalem. Church was experiencing some hard times financially. And there was an abundance of widows in the church and others that were having trouble meeting, to, uh, meeting the ends, ends that were just driving them into, into poverty. And so we read, all the believers were one in heart and one in mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. For from time to time... 
Those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone that had need. Acts 4, 32 through 35. What is that? Well, they saw the need and they met the need. How did they meet the need? Through sacrificial, generous donations. It, it works so well that verse 34 of the same chapter says, no needy person was among them. Wait a minute, didn't we just read that they were giving because there was need, and now we're reading now there's no needy one among them. Well, that's because their actions solved the problem. And while this was going on in the material realm of the church life, the Jerusalem church was also experiencing spiritual revival. Right in the midst of this extraordinary generosity, Luke writes to us in chapter 4, verse 33, with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. So in the midst of, of this generous giving, there's this spiritual revival. Well, something else is going on in the midst of all this excitement. Ananias and wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property, and it was a tidy sum. What should they do? Well, well what, what should we do? They thought, well... We know that Barnabas, one of the older church members, also sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it all at the apostles' feet. Acts 4, verse 37. So I think we should do that too. I, I do. I think we should do that. But, but before their gift made it to the collection box, giver's remorse set in. Sapphira, what, what, what do you think about this? Uh, this is a, this is a lot, of, lot of money. Let me read the scripture. Maybe we should keep back part of the money for ourselves, said Ananias. And with his wife's full knowledge, I'm still reading scripture, with his wife's full knowledge, Acts 5 verse 2, that is exactly what Ananias did. Giver's remorse had captured them. But... That was not their sin. Their sin was explained by Peter. Peter says, didn't the property belong to you before it was sold? Hello? Well, yeah, the deed says Ananias and Sapphira. Okay. And after it was sold, asked Peter, wasn't the money at your disposal? That is, give what you want or what you don't want, whatever. You have not lied to men, but to God. What was the lie, you ask? Well, the lie was not, it was not, giving a portion of the proceeds to the church. That was not the lie. The lie was giving a portion of the proceeds to the church and letting everyone think that like Barnabas, they had given it all. Ah, there it is. Giver's remorse set in, and what they originally intended to do, they abandoned but continued to pretend to have given the total amount, and God struck them both dead. First indication of judgment in the New Testament church. 
We look at our text here in Genesis, and there is no such giver's remorse indicated in our text about Abram. Still, this rescue of his nephew, Lot, had cost him dearly. And it wasn't likely to be paid back by selfish, greedy Lot or by anyone else. The spoils of war were not a fitting payback for a man who in faith had fought the battle in the name of the Lord. And so God says to him in verse 1, Abraham, I want you to know something. I am your great reward. I know this battle has cost you. Rescuing Lot has cost you. But I am your great reward, not the spoils of Sodom and the other cities. Now, what lessons do we learn for our heart out of this? Number one, we should learn that whatever danger may loom on the horizon for us, God himself is our shield. God himself. What's the purpose of a shield? Well, one thing we know, it is not, it is not an offensive weapon, a piece of weaponry. It is not like a sword or a javelin or in our day a gun. A shield, usually out of beaten brass, made out of beaten brass, is a defensive weapon. Its design is like um, the Kevlar bulletproof vest which our policemen wear while in patrol. The vest does not shoot back at assailants, but it protects the wearer from those who shoot at them. It absorbs the impact of bullets or deflects them in such a way as to keep the wearer safe. And God is saying to Abraham, the great I am of the universe, the ever-present one, is your shield against anyone or anything mortal or supernatural, that would attempt to destroy you. Paul put it this way, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, notice when the evil day comes, not if, it's coming, it's here, folks. So when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Ephesians 6, verse 11 through 18. The beauty of this text is how Paul, I'll say it this way, how he cuts to the quick. He goes right to the heart of the matter. 
He doesn't talk about tyrannical government over, uh, overtaking us. He doesn't refer to Islamic terrorists or mafia thugs or white-collar embezzlers or identity thieves that rob your bank account. He doesn't talk about any of those things. No, he addresses the mastermind, Satan, who is behind all of this. And in so doing, he tells us to shield ourselves using God's spiritual armor, especially the shield of faith, which evidences itself through prayer in the spirit. You know what prayer is? It's looking outside of yourself for help. That's what prayer is. You want help from your enemies? Pray. Because your colossal enemy is in the spiritual realm, the spiritual powers. It's a tremendous lesson to learn. We live in dangerous times, but we need to be praying people and hold up the shield of faith. Second lesson, whatever losses we experience in loving, obeying, and serving Christ, Jesus is our exceeding great reward. Jesus taught, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Matthew 6 verse 25. And then in verse 31 he concludes, so do not worry saying, oh, what shall we eat? Oh, what shall we drink? Oh, what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. What does that mean to me? What does that mean to my family? He goes on, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. What about financial reversals, bad business decisions, stock market crashes, stupid extravagant spending, robbery by thieves, confiscation of your possessions by corrupt authorities? Jesus' life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Luke 12, verse 23. One, Jesus, one day Jesus spoke to a rich young ruler who was unwilling, unwilling to denounce his love of money and follow Christ. And uh, Peter was there and very observant. In a, and he, he voiced this to the Lord. Lord, we have left all we had to follow you. <laughs> He's not boasting. He's just stating the reality. They had left their fishing nets, their fishing boats, their livelihood. And for three years, tramping all around Palestine, Heather and Jan, learning from Christ, following his example, being his disciples. Lord, we have left all to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. Eternal life. Luke 18, verse 28 through 30. You know what this is? It is God saying to Abraham, the father of the faithful, I am your exceeding great reward. 
You haven't lost anything, Peter. Now we might ask, how can a promise of God made to Abraham be legitimately supplied to us thousands of years later? The first answer to this is, by faith, we believers are Abraham's descendants. We're his children. Paul writes it this way, Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham, so those who have faith are blessed, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Galatians 3, verse 7 and following. That's the first answer. The second answer, verse 1 of our text, The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Ooh, a vision. This is the first time in the Bible that the word vision is used. And it is by vision that God communicated his will to his prophets. The one, of, one of the tasks of the prophets being to receive the message, yeah, but to then speak it forth, speak forth the truth of God's word for his people. Much of it futuristic, to be sure. That's what we think of when we hear prophecy. But as well, very immediate, now. So when coming to the new covenant, we learn that the promises made to Abraham and about Abraham came to him in his prophetic capacity so that God's eternal pledge to Abraham applies not only to him, but to his spiritual family as well. Paul puts it this way. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Romans 4, verse 16. This means, among other things, that when God said to Abraham, I am your exceeding great reward, that promise applies to all of Abraham's children of faith as well. And so when Jesus told Peter, no one has left all, and that whole list there, father, mother, and so on, no one who has left all will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Peter was hearing essentially what God promised Abraham, I am your exceeding great reward. You know, We come to Peter's own writings and we see that Peter, Peter believed Christ on this occasion. Here's what Peter writes. He's writing to his own people. Grace and peace, to, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. 2 Peter 1 verses 2 through 4. Peter's taking Christ at his word. He's taking God at his word. And so Christ Jesus is both our protective shield of defense against all that would seek to destroy us and to any and all 
who have lost goods or even life because of your Christian testimony, Christ is our exceeding great reward, the depths of which no one can plummet in this life or in the next. Let me put it this way. To have Jesus is to have the most high creator of heaven and earth, to use Abram's word, as our Savior and our benefactor. You're rich this morning, brethren, if you know Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, but you've got lots of money in the bank, you're poor, poor, poorer than the worst pauper on Skid Row in Detroit City. To have Christ is to have the kingdom of the world as your benefactor. And to have Christ is to have the ultimate Savior. There is no power against him. And let us pray. Thank you, dear Christ, for who you are, what you are, and what you have become for us. Grant to us the shield of faith. When the evil one fires his doubting darts at us to try to ruin our faith, if we hold up that shield, by that shield of faith, we will be able to extinguish, Paul says, the fiery darts, the lying, slanderous remarks and untruths made by the evil one. Designed like Sennacherib's officers speaking in Hebrew to the children on the wall to discourage them and instill them with fear. Lord, let us not fear. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for thou art with us. How we praise you this morning. For anyone here outside of Jesus today, may you find them. Lord, remove the fears of their heart. Remove their concerns about the economy, their fear of ISIS and the terrorists in the world, and let them put their trust this day in our great God and Savior. That it might be to the praise and the glory and the honor of your name and to their good. Amen.